and let us pray. Gracious Father, for, uh, for this day and for all our blessings, we give you great and humble thanks, asking as ever that we would be beneath your living word uh, uh, as it is active, sharpened than a double-edged sword. Allow it properly then to do its work upon us, separating not only our bone from marrow, as your word says, but um, the flesh from the spirit, the law from the gospel, uh, that which is of you and that which is of the world, the flesh and the devil, allowing uh, all to be brought beneath your saving hand. We beg this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, just remembered, in my sort of haste to get everything ready, I did not bring Bibles uh, for everybody to look at, which I usually like to do. Um, uh, but it's a relatively small part of John 15 that we're going to look at. It's not, not, not the whole chapter. Um, kind of got hung up, I think, on the first part. Well-known part. Um, I am the vine, you are the branches. Uh, apart from me, you can do nothing. The abide passage and all. So we're going to look at that. Um, before we do, just a quick catch one more time. Um, sort of as a series. Uh, also, let people like Stuart find a seat. Um, you can pull over if you want. Um, although you might be in the directory of the... The projector. Um, words from the end of the world is what this is. Uh, what this is called, uh, sort of technically, tech, you know, Bible speak. You would say the the, the the five chapters, John 13 through 17, are what's often called the upper room discourse. Um, if you have a red letter Bible, you know, where you look at the, the words of Christ in red. I think that was a big deal back when when sort of colored print started to come out, because you can make, you know, words of Christ in red, and you're like, okay, well, thanks, I appreciate that. Um, you can see, and it's almost all red. It's, it's the longest sort of uninterrupted teaching in the four Gospels that we have of Christ, the second being his Sermon on the Mount, um, uh, or extended teaching, you could say, of Christ. Um, so those four, those five chapters, making five weeks, a five-week series, that's kind of what we're playing with, and then lots of plays within that. Words from the end of the world, in a certain sense, it's the, uh, the end of the age, the end of time. Um, uh, Jesus certainly talks about that. He speaks a lot in this passage about my hour, which has not yet come, but it's almost there. And so as if time, at least some element of time, is coming to an end. The hour either ends as the new hour approaches. And that hour, as he very much understands it, is his death. Um, it makes no... Um, no equivocation whatsoever, especially in John's gospel, about the importance of the death. And we're going to, the sort of A-B part today is a, uh, no videos, uh, but, a, but a print from um, Hans Holbein, Hans Holbein the Younger, that we're going to look at in a moment. So that'll say a lot about the hour which, which Christ understood. So the words from the end of the world, as if the end of the world, you know, as Revelation might describe it, uh, uh, has come. And then, um, words from the end of the world, as if, and this is a lot of play on this, trying to chase some ideas from some more popular psychology, contemporary psychology, um, observations from human experience, just those things about uh, as we come to the end of our rope, as we come to the end of ourselves, as we come to a realization of our own limitations, um, how we're overly... Um, we esteem ourselves far too highly. I'm going to look at that a little bit today um, for the financial sorts in here. Um, uh, I'll, I'll look for some, some help uh, trying to maybe begin to offer some thoughts on the subprime crisis, which I think fits in the abide part. And then if we have time, this may hold over for another part. Sort of a fun way to look at how we are when we are under, uh, how should we say it, under the effects of arousal. Um, 
exactly. It's kind of funny. Uh, how we're not really that... We're, we, we do not make good decisions, surprise, surprise, when we're under states of arousal, uh, which has a lot of implications in other ways. Not just sexual arousal, but that's obviously the way in, but some other ways. So the words from the end of our world as if, you know, our own limitations. But then the most profound, I think, pastorally, is beneath both of those, as we're at our end or as the world comes to an end and, you know, hell in a hen basket, whatever that means. Hen basket or hen basket? Hand basket. Um, uh, I have no idea. <laughs> um, Christ is already there. He's there waiting. And, and yeah, about this time in a series, I always sort of find my own voice as why the Lord, I pray always of the Lord, why the Lord said, do that, Gil. Because I really didn't know at the beginning why we're doing this. But as I've sat last few weeks thinking about this class, it's that image I have of Christ already there as I'm sort of free-falling uh, you know, into, into nothingness, just out of fear, uh, realizing that I'm, 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 I'm not who I thought I was. I'm, in fact, a stranger to myself. That God already knows. I can get emotional even thinking about it. God already knows that. And there's such comfort to me. And this is just me talking to myself. And I'd say this is, this is my inner monologue 24-7. Um, that God's already there. And He's waiting. And so the word from the end of the world is Him saying, I'm already here. I'm here. It's okay. I've got it. I foresaw this. This did not surprise me. I am not disappointed. There is no more shame. It's all, it's all in my hand. I wouldn't have chosen this either, but it's all going to be okay. All things shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, for I am well pleased with you, my beloved. And so from the end of the world, he's already there. He's already there waiting. So that's sort of the end. So, and none of these really sort of reflect that. So it's odd that that's the big word for me because that's not where I'm spending a lot of our time. So that's kind of the series where we are. This week, in, um, as I mentioned in John 15, this is, uh, if last week, the sort of walkaway passage, the funeral passage, appropriately so, in the Episcopal liturgy. Um, uh, I go to prepare a place for you, saith the Lord. If it were not so, would I have, not, would I have told you? Um, from my Father's house there are many rooms. Uh, and then Thomas turns and says, Lord, show us the way. And he's like, you know, Thomas, have you been with me so long? You know, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He's already there, already there for all who uh, will beneath the, uh, the saving hand of Christ is, uh, is there already holding us, already waiting for us. Um, so that was John 14. John 15, I am the true vine. Um, apart from me, you can do nothing. We're going to go there. But before we do... Um, if I had to think of a way, maybe of subtitling, I haven't subtitled these these, uh, these classes really out of my own laziness because I wasn't prepared enough to do so. Um, but if I did, remember those bumper stickers? I guess, I don't know when these came up. What was it Question Authority? Well, if you had to put it on a coffee mug or a t-shirt or a bumper sticker, probably something like Challenge Autonomy. Um, there's, a, there's a zeitgeist right now, and it's been around for a long time, so it's, it's, it's not just a spirit of this age, but a spirit, I think, reflective of, of who we are in our, in our natural state, to think that we're autonomous, that I live to myself, um, that I am a law unto myself, is what the word actually means, autonomos, um, that, that I am the master and commander, that I actually sort of, you know, play a pretty big part in my own life. And it makes sense, doesn't it, that we would. I mean, we wake up and we move through the day and we seem to make decisions about how I'm going to spend my time, my money, what I'm going to do, what I'm not going to do. 
Uh, I mean, it certainly appears that way. And so I know it's a big deal to sort of pick on that idea that we are not as autonomous as we think we are. Um, I'm not the man I think I am. Uh, I wake up some mornings and I'm a stranger to myself. If you ever catch yourself saying, what? Was that really me? You know, whether it's after a night or a day or whatever, um, a season, was that really me? We're challenge autonomy, this idea that I am a law unto myself or that I really am sort of an independent and rational agent, that I've got something to kind of say about my life. Um, uh, I don't know who said it. Uh, I can't remember that far back. But there's a way of describing sanctification, just that process after our justification before God, which means we're placed into a right relationship. And again, that's going to be in the piece of art in a moment. Uh, that sanctification, sort of the, the Christian life, as it's sometimes called, the question of now then, how shall I live, which comes out of the Gospels. Uh, some people want to say, well, now that you have prayed the prayer and uh, know yourself as a sinner and Christ is your Savior, now make Him your Lord and you should do what He tells you to do. Now that you know Him as your Savior, and it's as easy as what Andrew Pearson said in his sermon, just believe in Him, uh, now... Make him your Lord. And he says, you know, do this, don't do that, do this, and don't do that. And now we shall be back under that way. That's a little bit of a caricature, but not much. There's a lot that goes out that way. I'm not in that camp. I don't think that's what sanctification is. Um, Always searching for ways then to describe what sanctification is. What is this way of becoming sanctified? And sanctified means holy. Holy does not mean better. does not mean more perfect than another. It means set apart. It means that which is pulled out from everything else, and, and it's got a place. And so it has nothing to do with really the, the, the moral quality. Holy has nothing to do with moral quality. It has everything to do with being beloved. It has everything to be do with you know, looking through all these books and say, that one, that's the one I want. Now that's kind of cool. That's sanctification. And sanctification seen in a way where sanctification is forgetting about yourself. Again, challenge autonomy. Challenge this idea that I am sort of the master of myself. Sanctification as a way of forgetting about yourself. We're actually sort of, as Christ would say himself, um, there are moments, glimpses, where the left hand actually forgets what the right hand is doing. But then, of course, the problem with me is, as I'm the right hand, I always look at the left hand and become jealous. And I say, well, look what he gets. And so then suddenly my little bliss is shattered, as I don't forget about myself anymore, but at least for a time, you can taste it and see what, what heaven, I'm way off, I'm going to get back on, heaven must be like, in terms of sanctification, being um, an idea of forgetting about yourself. So let's read. Let's always want to make sure we get into the text um, before we go too far afield. Um, John 15, any comments so far? I'd like to put pauses out there just to see if anybody wants to interrupt or take, take a exception. I always hope for that, but it doesn't come as much as I like, so the contrarian in me. Um, John 15, let's do John 15, 1 through 11. I may read it twice, since, since we don't have it in front of us. Familiar words for most of us. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself 
unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so, I have, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. There's a lot more in, uh, in this chapter, but we're not going to go forth too much farther. Let me read it one more time, just to let the words come through, and then we'll pick it apart a little bit and make some observations. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser, or the gardener, the one who takes care of the vines. Um, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so they may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. I'm going to stop there. That's verse 7. Any comments on that? It's hard to catch. This is a, it's very dense, these five chapters of John, I find. Um, I have to sit with them for a long time, even as they're very familiar, to, uh, to let a lot of it move past that first level. Um, but any comments? Any impressions? Certainly could be. Um, you know, some gardeners in the room. You know, I'm very elementary, but as you prune a bush for its health, it looks like it, it would hurt. It look like it would hurt. Makes it, you know, look worse, et cetera, and so forth. But it's necessary to. And I really need help here. I assume because what's that? It promotes. How does it promote growth? Does anybody know? Like it concentrates the nutrients into a smaller amount of space. I mean, is that something like it? So that's that's how I would look at it and say, well, if it's this big. And it's got so many, you know, X quantity of zinc. I don't know. What does a plant need to grow? So that you cut it down and it's got three times the amount and so it can grow better. Something like that. So, um, the root supports less. That's right. The root supports less. That's good. So, I mean, I think you can play this a lot. And I'm, and, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I, I, don't, I don't garden. I don't know. Um, maybe we'll change that. So. <laughs> um, I threw myself off. Uh, so what is this pruning? Certainly a trial. It's a neat play on words in the Greek, which I don't really speak, but I know how to use the Internet to look at things. Um, as he looks at the word clean and prune, almost synonymous with the word that we do use, although not in everyday parlance, catharsis, um, which is cleaning, um, a cathartic event, which is a word I like to use sometimes uh, in this class, which, which in 
in analytic uh, psychology, gosh, I don't know where I come from these things sometimes, um, has to do with a violent expulsion of unconscious material. And I love that phrase, a, violent, a sometimes violent expulsion of unconscious material, a cathartic event, you know, which we've looked at at the Christmas class that I did, kind of ab reaction where you find yourself crying over a Kleenex or a coffee or a tampon commercial. And you're like, why am I doing this? That was, that's catharsis. Whatever it is, something's going on. Um, so, Charlie, your good question. Uh, is, it, is, it, is it a trial? Is it a spiritual event? Yes. It's a coming to the end of yourself. Words from the end of the world, where I'm right there at the edge. Whatever that would be. Um, a piece of mail, uh, a preface. Can I talk to you for a minute? Um, uh, often a diagnosis. This is where the hospitals really do clarify meaning for us so, so well. Um, we realize that we're not autonomous. Um, there's, there's few pretenses. There, I guess there could be some, but not as many pretenses in a hospital um, as, uh, as elsewhere. Um, so absolutely, that kind of pruning is what he's talking about. Something that takes you to the end of yourself. Because uh, as we're branches, the branch says to the gardener, don't do that. No. Clay doesn't say to a potter, uh, make me into a vase and not to a bowl. Um, uh, abide in me uh, is what the uh, what the word is going to be. How so? Abide in me. Yeah. I mean, what does that mean? Do yeah, we don't use the word abide very much, do we? So. But I mean, you go from the law, which spelled out every little thing to do, to abide in me. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Good. Thoughts before I just jump in? Yeah, Valerie? Well, we obviously screwed up when it was all law. <laughs> yeah, right? we, can't, we can't function with the law because we can't. We screw up now, too, though. We do? But we have grace that is broader than the law. Yeah. Right? In, in yeah. And so, you know, God is this thing we can't, we, we can't fathom all the facets of God anyway. So it's got to be vague, almost. We are, we're just naturally going to think it's vague because we're not on the same level with God, yeah. right? Yeah, sure. Let me pick, if, you, if you're going to 11, you haven't been yet. It's Andrew's sermon that I'm referring to. So wild how often these all come together. But his sermon is on how, how simple in some ways the gospel is. Um, uh, God made him who knew no sin, Christ, to be sin, uh, so that we the ones who formerly were sin, sin embodied, uh, would now become the righteousness of God. Um, there's the exchange uh, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that the one who wasn't what we were became what we were, so the thing that we weren't, we then become. The thing that we weren't was the righteousness of God. The thing that we weren't was pure and holy and and, uh, and counted as sinless, um, and counted as pleasing and acceptable. Um, and that's all out of 1 Corinthians 5.21. Not, not saying it's easy, but it's that simple. So what does that mean? It means, in some ways, just that. It means God, and there's no equivocation, because where, where am I in this whole equation? I'm not. Remember, challenge autonomy. God made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin, so that we might become 
the righteousness of God. I have no part in that. It's a passive righteousness, as it says. Abide in me. Remain in me. Is a word we probably would use more often. Uh, how do I do that? You're a branch. What is a branch? I know this much about, about, about gardening. How much does a branch say, I think I'm going to move over to that trunk <laughs> and stick myself in there and grow? Because that looks a lot better. Because, you know, the, the form and the figure is just more befitting, or I like that soil better, or, you know, I'm kind of jealous because they've got this pot over there and it's all nice. It doesn't happen. Remain in me. Um, because you can't really do anything else. Uh, and it's, it becomes that simple. So let me try to flesh that a little bit more. It's a great question. I don't want to put, push it apart. Um, when he says he removes the branches that don't bear fruit, Yeah, good. Okay, I want to go there. Um, uh, lots of ways, and I don't want to get too bogged. I, I, I take a, I'm going to take a kind of a wide latitude, sort of a, you might say, a preacher's license here. Um, I think it fits the rest of Scripture. To view ourselves as really a multitude of selves. Um, the old Adam and the new Adam at the same time. Um, uh, I am the Gerasene demoniac um, out of Mark 4. Um, uh, you know, the one uh, who was in, in, the, in the graveyard and he's cutting himself and he's chained up and he's going nuts uh, and, and nobody can subdue him, so just leave him alone and say, just, just don't go over there anymore. You know, until he dies, that, that graveyard is just useless because we're just going to wait him out. Uh, but Jesus goes there, goes to the place that nobody else wants to go. Uh, and what does he do? He confronts him. And, and true to every other instance, uh, the demons that are possessing the man immediately recognize Christ. Christ, what have you to do with me? Um, Christ says, release the man. Get out of him. Um, allow the man to be clean. Cathart. Uh, same word that's here. Uh, and he comes out and the demon says, my name is Legion. For we are many. It's not just once, thousands. You know, what is a legion of soldiers? Do I know 20,000, I think? You know, I'm 20,000 people inside this man. <coughs> Taking that as a little bit of a license, I'm legion. That's me. I'm, it's as if I'm 20,000 different people. I'm one person in one instance. I'm another in another. I'm another in another. I'm always a stranger to myself, and I keep waking up with that type of amnesia, with that type of schizophrenia, with that type of need. And so coming in here, where all of the branches that do not bear fruit, he prunes and he takes those branches and, and he bundles them up and he throws them into the fire. Uh, that can be terrible because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Coming out of, you know, that's Hebrews quoting another place, probably Isaiah. Um, Maybe not. I don't know. Come out of the Hebrews. I know that. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God, but also the word from the end of the world is, I'm already there. Uh, even as those parts of me, which I want to die. I want to be made whole. I want to be one person. I want to be just the one who God names, who Christ names, who God says, you. I want that one. Not all of those. I want that one. So I actually get defined. And I know myself even as I am fully known. I'm trying to borrow lots of different phrases from the New Testament. I think that's part of a way I would come in with, 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 with here in John 15. That he takes those parts of me through a pruning process, through a cleaning process. Uh, and this is what I would call repentance. Um, 
And he collects all those parts of me in the slow process of sanctification, which is the justification event repeated. Uh, and, he, and he counts me as righteous. And that changes everything. In a strange way, it's that simple. It's not, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try harder to heal this diseased branch. A branch can't do that. I can't do that. I'm passive, and I'm in the hands of God who is taking me, because he's going to do whatever he wants anyway. That's the definition of God, right? Um, uh, and it's a good thing that he's waiting at the end of my world, saying, I got it. I'm going to take this and run with it. <coughs> so let me move on. Um, in the old prayer book, 79, they, they, they changed this in the old ones, because the, the prayer of humble access, we just prayed it. Um, we do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. Um, there was a phrase, now I've got to look, there was a phrase uh, that, that Cramner himself penned all the way up through through the, and this doesn't sound like I'm an old curmudgeon, you know, banging on the, the, the quote, new prayer book, which is going to change anyway. Um... They had this phrase, and it came out of this part in John 15. And it said, So to eat the flesh of a dear son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, the part that was omitted was this, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, and that our souls washed through his most precious blood, that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Here's that abide. Here's that remain. Here's that what we call communion with God. That, that, that becoming common is what that word means. That becoming common, that becoming one with God through this, this act of cleansing, that we would be, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by His body and our souls washed through His most precious blood. Hear that echo here in John 15:3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I in you. As we approach the table of our Lord and drink His blood and, and eat His body broken, uh, it's a cleansing act. It's this defining of me, where my name is Legion, but maybe I become one less. As a branch gets gathered up and, and, and burned, that needs to be burned, this part of me that, that, in a proper sense, I can actually say, damn it, and, and mean it as an imperative, and say, Lord, take this and call a spade a spade. Call it what it is, and take it and remove it, you know, for your sake. Um, that's a bold prayer, by the way. I'm not necessarily recommending that because it might get answered. That's a problem. Um, but at least I want to want to pray that. Um, and maybe a good friend will pray that for me um, because they love me enough where I can't even love myself that much. But that's another, that's another class. Um, so this idea, let's, just, let's shift gears while we have time. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Coming up from some of the, those, those sort of existential depths in the New Testament, let's try to look at you know, what's happened to our, our 401Ks in the last five years. Um, apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, challenge, autonomy, um, all these ideas. Here's where I'm going to need a lot of help. But I, if I have to try to make sense of what happened, say, in 2007, 2008, you know, coming out of, of, uh, of some philosophies. Ideas have consequences and all that that, you know, there were ideas that were driving the market. Um, the Fed and Alan Greenspan and others were uh, 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 ideas that they had that were, were forming public policy. Uh, it seemed as if it was a different view of human nature. 
this idea of human nature that we are not rational, that we don't make decisions well, that we um, are not who we think we are. We are, in fact, often strangers to ourselves. This idea of a rational self-interest, that if we all act rationally in our own best interest, it has the collective good, which is sort of objectivism by Ayn Rand, the Fountainhead, and Atlas Shrugged, and all that. Sorry, my nose itches. Um, there's a problem. There's a problem with self-interest. It's that the self is fundamentally flawed, and we don't see things nearly as clearly as we think we do. Um, I see what I'm convinced is the letter A, and it's in fact something else. Remember the whole Patch Adams thing? What do you see? What do you see? And they're sitting there, I see six. I see six. No, go away. You know, it's behind the mask. You know, look at me. That's what you should be seeing. We don't see things what we think we see. Um, where does that come around? You know, and I need a lot of help. You know, what were, the, what were some of the instruments? There were a lot of them, but two of them that I think I can begin to understand, these adjustable rate mortgages or these interest-only mortgages, thinking that, well, we can empower the, uh, the, the borrower in a lot of ways because the problem is they should, because of their income and all that, maybe get a $150,000 mortgage. Um, well, to do that, and I'm just going to use round numbers, they have to pay $1,000 a month, um, and they could probably fit that into their budget. Um, but it still, it stresses them out a little bit, and they don't have as much power of control over their money to, to go on a vacation or in case they get sick or their child needs something. So why don't we do something to help the borrower, um, knowing that they're rational and they can pursue their own self-interest properly, uh, uh, to free up a little bit so that they can borrow $150,000 in a mortgage uh, but not have to pay $1,000 a month. And so we can do an interest-only mortgage where all they have to pay is the interest over, say, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, uh, and never actually get to the principal. It's kind of like leasing a car where all you're doing is sort of paying the bank for the privilege of, of using their money, and then when it's due, you can just do it again if you want to. And you're basically kind of a lease arrangement. And there's a lot of things I don't understand about that. But that's one way I understand this idea of an interest-only mortgage. And so you wouldn't, their cash flow would not be uh, crimped by $1,000 a month, but maybe only $300 a month. And so then that family, wouldn't it be great if that family would then have $700 extra a month to to uh, take a vacation or to send their kid to a private school, which is going to help the economy and it's going to help society, et cetera, and so forth. Or adjustable rate mortgage where, uh, look, we can do this because we're all going to keep getting richer and richer and richer, and so we'll start off at, at 2%, and then in two years it'll be 4%, and in six years it'll be 6%, and we'll just kind of go up. Uh, same idea, that they'll be in a better position early on to buy a house, which will be in all of our better interests because we can go for it. Well, what's the problem with all that? Now, we, of course, hindsight's 2020, which is why somebody like me has nothing to do with finance, um, can, can, can take pot shots at something which is infinitely more complicated than this. But I have to get, well, what's the problem with all that? The question was not how much should they borrow. We turned it around, and everybody asked what? How much can I borrow? <laughs> so in this interest-only... If what I should be borrowing is $150,000, uh, and in the old way, a normal mortgage, quote-unquote, um, my, my, uh, my cash flow was going to get crimped $1,000 a month, uh, it would have been nice if I still would have borrowed what I should, $150,000, and have $700 free cash. Instead, I said, well, if I could have sort of stretched it, maybe, and remember, too much is just not quite enough 
because um, we always want to just oversee, you know, if, if I should, if I think I can make it there in 15 minutes, I'm going to stretch it and think I'm going to get there in 12 maybe because the light's probably not going to be red when I get there. Um, we asked how much can I borrow and they said, well, I mean, under all this, if you can pay back $1,000 a month, we'll loan you $700,000. Well, that became a problem. Um, as everybody was in over leveraged far too much, they could do it. And there's, uh, help me, anybody in finance, I'm looking around, I know there's a lot of mortgage people here. The question became, it was a fundamentally flawed question. That's where I can come in as a theologian and make a theological comment. It's a fundamentally flawed question, not how much should you borrow, but how much can you borrow? Because that's what, that's what part of the legion in me is always going to ask the wrong question. It's going to ask the question that, 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 that I want to hear. The part, of, the part of me, um, I can't get away from Freud here, the id, you know, the pleasure one, the seeker, says, well, what can I do to kind of get away with it? How far can I go before you get in trouble? Before I get in trouble, Mom. How far can I go before it's not sex? How far can I go until I don't have... Uh, problems with the bank. How far can I go until um, the boss comes and finds me and I'm considered late? How far can I go? That's the question most of us ask, not what should. Comments or thoughts? Here's what comes back around. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Um, we have a problem. And, and rednecks know this. What's the famous last word of a redneck? What's I knew y'all would know this one. See what you, hey y'all, watch this. So, what's the famous? And this is this was me growing up. Actually, I, I should not be alive. You know that show? I'm really on that. So it was fun. I had a great childhood, but I really shouldn't. What's the famous last word of the redneck's friend? I can do that. <laughs> oh, man, he did it wrong. <laughs> I'm a little bit better. I can learn from a mistake, and now I'm going to do it right. So I can go down that tree and sort of fly. and It would be great. No problem. So we don't get smarter. We don't ask the right questions. We don't see things the way we should. We're going to save the sex stuff for later. Um, this is a... Oh, I'll turn the lights off. Um... From Hans Holbein, a Reformation artist, you know, it's one of these really didactic, kind of complicated paintings. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Um, that's, that's where all this is. Challenge autonomy. Um, Reformation, strongly influenced uh, by, uh, by, by, by theology ahead of time, and so the art reflected that. We talked about that in this class before, where a lot of the art... As, as the printing press was just coming on board with Gutenberg, et cetera, and so forth, and it was coming into the lingua franca, the common language of everyone, art was still, uh, also with the printing press, um, uh, art was, was coming online, was continuing, really, to be uh, instructive as much as anything. And so this painting was called An Allegory of the Old and New Testaments, which is a little bit of a misnomer, The Allegory of Law and Grace. Up here at the top, Lex for Law and Gratio, if you can read that, for Grace. Um, we could start around. The, the centerpiece, obviously, is a tree. Um, on our left of the tree, um, the law side, you can see it's, it's death and decay, and there's not, not green leaf, barren. Uh, and on the right, a tree in, in, in full color with all the green. Up at the top, beneath Lex, of course, that's Moses receiving the commandments of God from God. You can almost see his hand proceeding from the, uh, uh, from the heavens. 
where Moses receives the law. Probably should have started here because it's all about a mirror. Here's Adam and Eve with the serpent. Can you see that, really? Does that need to be focused? Any? Um, uh, where it says sin, peca, uh, uh, it's the Latin for sin, whatever that is. Um, where the original sin comes in, uh, where Adam and Eve um, uh, commit the first sin and it becomes then uh, original to us, not just because it was the first, but it's because it's original to us at our conception where sin we come out into the world sinful without any innocence. Uh, coming down, then that sin which then leads to death with the kind of the tomb kind of crumbling away where you see the skeleton in there, moors, death, uh, where the, the sin which leads to death, uh, the law which is the proper judge for the wages of sin, our death, the law which properly judges our sinfulness, which needs to be always held up. Law is not bad. It's just not gospel. Law is what properly confronts the legion within me and says, you are a diseased branch. Because a law draws a line between, this is the line between diseased and not diseased. And that needs to be clear. And so the law is good. It's just not the gospel. We shouldn't expect something from the law which it cannot give. The law does not give life. The law leads properly to our death. And so we see that. And then up here, this very strange part, which John, because we're following John, in John, um, John 3, right before the famous John 3.16, it's the last sentence before that, um, referring back to this very strange story in Numbers where Israel, the rebellious Israel, were grumbling and all that, and God got tired of hearing it, and so he sent a bunch of snakes to, uh, uh, to teach him a lesson, to prune him. Uh, and so the snakes bit him, and they, everybody started dying. And so Israel, of course, cries out, just like our children do. He's like, oh, help us. You know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And so odd, odd, odd story where God instructs Moses to take one of the serpents, one of the same instruments of death, and hang it on a pole. And everybody who looks upon that serpent will live. John sees that. Um, very Christologically, where in John 3, he says, and just as, as Moses lifted a serpent up on a pole, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. And so it begins then this mirror over to here. That's called the, the, uh, the mysterious justification over here. To, I can't really read that. Um, I think it's our justification. Where Christ himself was, uh, was lifted onto a pole. Um, here underneath the grace, you see an angel um, coming down, or maybe that's even Christ himself coming down, the baby to the Virgin Mary. Um, uh, proceeding from that to the Agnes Day, to the Lamb of God, which is what that means, with Christ following some of the disciples, uh, moving down to our victory, um, uh, which is Christ coming out of the tomb, crushing death beneath his foot. Where, O death, is thy victory? Where, O death, is thy sting? Um, that Christ is the victory over death. He who knew no sin was made to be sin so that we might become uh, the righteousness of God, which would mean there is no death. Um, all that pointing to, to the, the cross event. Within going back to the tree, the death and the life coming straight down to homo, which of course means man. Um, there he is. Great picture. Because this is where we're going to leave it and this will be our exit point. Um, apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's this man, naked, alone, uh, apart from God, uh, a look of, of, of despair, almost an ashenness, as if he's approaching the point of death. Beneath this, in the Latin, is the reference to Romans 7, which says, Wretched man that I am. 
Um, who will deliver me from this body of death? This body, almost ashen, almost death, with, uh, with a little bit of life left. And then who are the people uh, on his right and left? The one on his right, our left, the prophet Isaiah, you can see in the bottom. And they're both pointing to the Agnus Day, to the Lamb of God. Uh, or actually, Isaiah is pointing up to, um, to the Virgin Mary, which is a saying out of Isaiah 7. You can see the reference down there, ISA 7. Uh, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And then John the Baptist, pointing over here to the Agnus Day, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What does abide in me mean? Um, it's just so vague. Isaiah and John the Baptist are saying it means this. It just means him. Um, this is the last of what's called the seven I am statements in John. Um, I am the vine. You are the branches. Apart, abide in me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. All the other I am statements, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of life, I am the way, the truth, the life, all those other ones. Again, I mean, it just bears you know, just our, our common syntax and our common sensibilities. He's saying, I am. It's not saying, me and you are. He's not saying, you are. He's not saying, y'all are, the church. He's saying, I am. It is radical exclusivity that Christ is saying, I am all of this. It leaves little wiggle room for everything else. And that's what he's saying. Look, this is me. This is, you know, my name is Legion. Wretch that I am. Who's going to deliver me? How am I going to get from point A to point B like a package? Who's going to take me over the divide to get me somewhere else? And there's the answers. You know, the points. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Jesus. And he should be called Wonderful, counsel, Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And behold, that one, that radical one, is the Lamb of God uh, who will take away not only the sin of the world, but your sin. Um, he's there at the end of the world saying, Behold, it is finished. I have done it. Anything that you can imagine is now within that saving reach that saving death. If you look upon the serpent, just as surely you shall be healed there. Look upon the Christ on the cross, for surely therein lies our salvation. So, so I really I get off on these kinds of art. Um, they're very, uh, they're moving to me, um, just in their instructiveness. They're not really great, you know, they're not pretty. <laughs> um, we don't have these in our homes, uh, but they're, I, I like them. Yeah. On, um, you know, on the right of the tree, you see the shepherd and the, I mean, and the sheep. That you see the sheep. What's on the left side? Right over in here. You, you, you mean, mean over here? What, yeah. What's that? This is uh, this is all the people dying. So that's part, um, of, that that's, that's part of this. Back here is going to be a little bit more. These are the people dying, uh, and then looking up at the the, the, the brazen serpent, the bronze serpent. But then in the back, that's probably actually <laughs> sort of in the forty days, forty years in the wilderness, the camp. Um, the camp of Israel um, receiving the manna from heaven and, and all that sort of stuff. So just the gathered, the gathered people of God who also were rebelling but now are finding redemption. Sort of the mysterious justification being made right again through a very strange event. The instrument, of, the instrument which was their death now becomes their life. That's kind of weird. Um, Good point. I didn't think of that. Yeah, he's he's not facing Christ. He's too, yeah. 
facing death, sin, the law. <laughs> That's good. I know we're over. Um, you want to Wikipedia it? Uh, an allegory, just Wikipedia Holbein allegory, and this is what will come up. So, let us pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, take um, any part of this uh, time and make it yours. Again, uh, I pray as a living word, it would, it would uh, divide life from death so that our joy would be found in that life and that joy be made complete. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Thanks. See you all next week.